This is Emmanuel Today. Taking steps towards God's possible in your life. Today we have a special guest speaker with us. We have uh, an incredible woman who's an author, a Bible teacher. She co-hosts a television show. She's ministered to over six million people around the world, and we're privileged to have her with us. So would you give a big round of applause for Sheila Walsh this morning? Morning, church. It's a real joy to be here with you. I wanted to read a scripture over you. Um, it's found in Philippians chapter 1, verse 6. It says this, and I am certain. And that word there, certain, if you looked it up in the Greek, it means you're so convinced you could take this evidence to the Supreme Court. It's like, I know this as deep as the marrow in my bones. I am certain that God who began the good work within you will continue his work until it's finally finished on the day when Christ Jesus returns. You hear that? He began the work and he has promised us that he will finish the work. God has never had an unfinished project. He is the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end. If you're feeling a little discouraged this morning and you think, Lord, I feel like I'm getting nowhere. Remember, he is at work within you. I'm certain that God who began the good work within you will continue his work until it's finally finished on the day when Christ Jesus returns. If I had to give a kind of title to my message this morning, it would be this. Your history does not determine your destiny in Christ. I love that. It doesn't matter where you started. It doesn't matter what kind of beginning you had. It doesn't matter what you did last night. Your history does not determine your destiny in Christ Jesus. There are three things that I have learned in my life so far on this glorious journey of following Christ. The first one is this. No matter how alone you feel at this moment, he sees your pain. He sees your pain. And sometimes, you know, I think when somebody makes a statement like that from a platform, it's tempting and reasonable to say, well, you don't know anything about me. You don't know my story. You don't know what I've been through. And that's true, but I would love to share just a little bit of what I've been through to, to help you see why I know this to be true. You've probably worked out by now by my funny accent that although we live in Dallas, I didn't start there. I was born on the west coast of Scotland in a small fishing village there. And Scotland is a country that has moved away from, from an allegiance to Christ. Less than 2% of our population even go to church. So many of the beautiful old churches that were built centuries ago are now movie theaters or carpet warehouses. So to be placed into a family where my mom and dad didn't just go to church, where they actually loved Jesus was such a gift. I was very much a daddy's girl growing up. My sister was more kind of what every mom hopes for. You know, she would wear all those sticky outy dresses and ribbons. 
And I was absolutely a tomboy, and I just thought my dad was the greatest thing that God had ever created. But when I was five years old, my father one night had a massive cerebral hemorrhage, ended up in hospital, and they weren't sure if he was going to survive. But, but after a few weeks, my dad was able to come home. But my mom explained to my sister and I, my baby brother was too young to understand, she explained that dad was a little different now. He was paralyzed down the left side, and he'd lost the ability to ever use words again. But I thought, you know, I'm just going to learn my dad's new language. You know, if he makes noises, I'll try and work out what he means. And mom says that during the first few weeks when my dad was home, she said, you never left his side. But then things started to change. The blood clot in my father's brain moved and began to press on an area that affected his personality. And from being this loving, wonderful, Jesus-loving dad, my father became a very confused and ultimately violent stranger in our home. And it started just in little ways. And interestingly enough, until the very last day, the only person he took his anger out on was me. And I thought I was the closest to him. One of my friends who's a neurologist explained to me some time ago that sometimes when there's a dramatic brain injury, the person instinctively hits out at the one person they believe will still love them no matter what. But you don't understand that when you're five. Started just in little ways. I would walk past his chair and he would spit in my face or he'd grab hold of my hair and pull out a handful. And I just kept thinking, I have to try harder. I'm making my dad angry. I need to try and be a better girl. But it came down to one final day when I was sitting in front of the fire playing with my little dog. And she did something she'd never done before. She was a very sweet, mellow little dog. Suddenly, a hackles raised, and she began to growl. And I turned just in time to see that my father was about to bring his cane down on my skull. And I don't remember if I pushed him or pulled the cane, but he lost his balance and hit the ground hard. I mean, my dad was a big man, 6'2", and just lay there roaring like an animal. And my mom had been in the kitchen, and when she heard what was happening, she took my sister and myself and my baby brother, and she locked us in a room while she dialed 911. Now, we lived in a small fishing village. I don't think it would have taken three or four minutes for help to get there, but it felt like an eternity. Sometimes three minutes can feel like an eternity. I remember standing, looking through the keyhole in the door, and all I could see were flashes of my dad banging my mom's head off one wall and off the other. And I thought that he was going to kill her. But eventually help arrived. It took five men to carry my dad out of the house that day. And he was taken off to what was called at that time our local lunatic asylum. It's what we call a psych hospital these days. And he was just 34 years old. But because he had become increasingly violent, they placed him in the maximum security ward. But all the men in there were in their 70s and 80s and had completely lost touch with reality. So my mom asked my dad's doctor, could you perhaps move Frank to a unit with some younger men? So they did, but it was a less secure unit. And on that first night of him being in that new place, my dad escaped. And they searched for him all through the night, and they found him as dawn was breaking. He had drowned himself in the river behind the hospital. 
In those days, you didn't take children to a funeral or to a graveside. My only memory is of my mom coming home in a black dress with a black hat on. And she did something that I didn't understand. She took every single picture of my father off the walls and off the tables, one from my bedroom, one from her bedroom. And she put them in a little suitcase, which she locked, and she pushed it under her bed. And we never mentioned his name again. I think my mom thought, if Sheila wants to talk, I'll let her bring it up. She had no way of knowing what was going on inside my heart and my head, because there was no one left on earth who could help me understand, what did I do? What did I do to make my dad hate me so much? If you have children of your own, or if you work with children, you will know this. Children are the best recorders of information. You can think they're not listening, they're missing nothing but they're the poorest interpreters of that information. Children always think it's their fault. There's something they could have done differently. I grew up with what I call a profound sense of shame. And this is how I differentiate between shame and guilt. This is not a clinical definition, but it helps me. To me, guilt is if I've done something wrong. If I said something unkind to my husband, Barry, I would feel guilty until I could sit down and say, listen, please forgive me. That was totally my fault. So if guilt tells me that I've done something wrong, shame tells me that I am something wrong. What do you do with that? You know, it would be so interesting if we had time to hear every one of your stories. And perhaps the abuse you suffered as, as a child was not like mine. Perhaps it wasn't physical abuse. Perhaps it was sexual abuse that leaves such a smudge on your soul. Maybe it was verbal abuse. Maybe you were told you weren't worth anything. I was speaking not long ago, maybe a year ago, at a conference in California, and there was a gentleman at the back, and I recognized him because I'd just read an article about him in Time Magazine. Very well-known, very wealthy, successful businessman. And I kind of wondered why he'd slipped in. And at the end, when everybody else left, he was still there. So I went up and introduced myself. And he said, I, I don't know if you know who I am. And I said, yeah, I just read an article about you in Time Magazine. And he said, you know, I listened to your message today, but here's the deal. Most people, if you ask them, if you bring up my name, they'll just say, what a successful man I am. But I want you to know, every night when I lay my head on the pillow, all I hear is my mother's voice saying, I wish you'd never been born. He said, there isn't enough money in the world to quieten that voice. We all go through broken times, painful times, and I don't know what yours have been. But if, even if you're in pain right now, or if you feel alone right now, or if life feels out of control right now, let me read you a couple of verses. This is Isaiah chapter 43, verses 1 and 2 says this, But now, O Jacob, listen to the Lord who created you, O Israel. The one who formed you says, do not be afraid, for I have ransomed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. When you go through deep waters, I will be with you. 
When you go through rivers of difficulty, you will not drown. When you walk through the fire of oppression, you will not be burned up. The flames will not consume you. If you're tempted to say, well, Sheila, that's the Old Testament. Those are promises that were made to the children of Israel. Let me remind you of this great good news found in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 20 says this. For no matter how many promises God has made, they are yes in Christ. Christ is the yes to every single one of the promises of God. I was speaking at a conference this weekend um, at Northwestern, and there was the, I was just hanging around, and one of the first women who came up to say hello pulled out her cell phone, and she showed me a picture of her son. His name was Toby, same age as my son. And I was about to say, oh gosh, what a great looking boy when I saw her eyes. And she told me that her son had taken his own life. I can't think of a greater pain as a parent than to have your child end their life and you don't know why. And I was reminded of this scripture, Psalm 34 verse 18 is a place where I have often buried my heart. It says this, the Lord is close to the brokenhearted and saves those, he rescues those whose spirits are crushed. God is not far away when you are hurting. He's right here. But here's the other thing that I have discovered in my life and it's changed everything. He removes your shame. He removes your shame. I mean, I grew up covered in it. You know, I wore it like a winter coat. It used to feel as if someone had taken a blanket and soaked it in icy water, and I just wore it over my shoulders. And I think, you know, when you walk through something that you can't process, when you don't know what to do with it, when it doesn't make sense, we find ways of going on. We find some kind of mask to wear or a place to hide. And sometimes we use food, too much or too little. Sometimes we turn to alcohol or to, to drugs, street drugs or prescription drugs, anything that will just quieten the pain, even for a little while. Sometimes as women, we spend too much money because we think, if I look better on the outside, maybe, just maybe, I'll feel better on the inside. You know, I found perfect place to hide. Christian ministry. And think about it. Who's going to come up to me and say, put that Bible down? No more second kings for you, lady. <laughs> but here's the deal. God's the only one who knows whether we are serving out of a calling or a wound so deep we don't know where else to hide. Whether we're serving out of pain or passion. So many people in the church are hiding. You know, you maybe drive into church and you've had the worst argument you've ever had with your husband or wife. You have called them things that are not in the New Testament. 
They may have been on the old, but they did not make it to the new. And then we walk through these doors and we're welcomed and they're like, hey, how you doing? And you're like, oh, I'm so close to Jesus, I'm nearly flying. <laughs> and we drag our baggage in with us and then we drag it all the way home. This is supposed to be the place where you get to show up as you really are and be loved. I think every single one of us longs. I mean, it's like, it's like you're born with this. We long to be loved and we long to be known. But we're so scared that if we're really known, we won't be loved. So out of that desire, that need to be loved, we trade away being known. I went to, I gave my life to Christ when I was 11. And I remember my mom saying to me that night, Sheila, not only is Jesus Christ your savior and your Lord, you have a heavenly father watching over you. And I remember thinking, wow, I've got one more chance to get it right. Whatever my earthly dad saw in me that made him hate me so much, my heavenly father never will. I made a commitment that I would be the perfect Christian if it killed me, and it nearly did. I read a story that I've known since I was a child. You know, in John chapter four, we read the story of Christ's encounter with one woman, and we're not given her name in John's gospel. We're just told she's the Samaritan woman or the woman at the well. Do you remember her story? She's been married five times and she's now living with a guy that's not her husband. We pop in for an hour into her life and we make judgments about her. But can you tell me of one little girl who has ever grown up thinking, oh man, wouldn't it just be amazing if I could be married five times? and then live with some guy that won't even marry me. We don't know her story. We don't know the tragedy, because in those days, it was very easy to divorce a woman like that and put her out in the street and give her nothing. So by the time she meets Christ, she is full of shame. And that's why she comes to gather water at the hottest time of the day, because nobody else will be there. There's nothing worse than having a bad reputation in a small town where everybody knows your stuff. And Christ is on this divine mission to meet this one woman. And after they've talked a little bit, he says to her, go and get your husband. That's what she's supposed to do. I guess she could drag the guy and say, hey, listen, would you just pretend we're married till we have this conversation? I'll explain over dinner. But she doesn't. She goes for the simplest explanation. She said, um, I don't have a husband. But this is the part I want you to pay attention to. Jesus says, I know that. This is the first time he's met her. I know that. You've been married five times, and the man you're now living with is not your husband. Now, why would he do that? Why would Christ heap shame upon shame? That's not why he was doing it. Because here's the deal, unless you believe that God knows the worst there is to know about you, you will never believe the best he has to offer you. Because you'll always think, if you just knew what I've done and who I really am. And then Jesus goes on to say, 
in John 4, verse 23. But the time is coming, in fact, indeed it's here now, when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. And that's pretty straightforward sounding in English. But you, go, you dig deep and you read in the original language. In the Greek, the word for truth here is the Greek word aletheia. And it means with nothing hidden. Christ just defined worship for us. Worship is in spirit with nothing hidden. Come as you are. Show up. Let him touch those places that you thought nobody could ever, ever heal. Nothing hidden. Jesus took her shame away that day. Because, you know why I know? She ran back to the village, the very people she'd been avoiding. She ran back and said, come meet the guy who told me everything I've ever done. I love it. It says, Psalm 34, verse 5. Those who look to him for help will be radiant with joy. No shadow of shame will darken their faces. The third thing I believe is he knows your name. He sees your pain. He removes your shame, and he knows your name. One day, my shame finally caught up with me. I'd been co-hosting the 700 Club on the Christian Broadcasting Network for five years. So on the surface, if you're just flipping through channels, looks like I've got it together. Interviewing people, flying out to interview Billy Graham in his home, flying around the world, bringing back reports of what God is doing. But here's the truth. Inside, I was still the same broken, scared little girl who wouldn't let anybody get close to her in case you saw what my dad saw. Do you know it's possible to be very well known and desperately lonely? That's how I lived. Well known and all alone. And God in his mercy decided to let my life hit the wall at 200 miles an hour to rescue me. One day I was interviewing a guest and instead of answering my first question, she turned the tables on me and she said, Sheila, you sit here every day asking us questions. How are you doing? And I wasn't expecting it. And I didn't have time to pull up my wall. And I did something I hadn't done in years. I started to cry. And I couldn't stop. And eventually, the director threw to a commercial break. And I took off my microphone and I walked out of the studio to my dressing room and locked myself in. And as far as I was concerned, my life was over. If you've based your whole relationship with God on never falling down, never messing up, always being worthy of his love, and then you fall apart on national television, where do you go? I called a friend of mine, a guy called Dr. Henry Cloud. And I said, I think I'm losing my mind, Henry. And he said, no, you're not, but you need some help and you need it quickly. So I went from co-hosting the 700 Club in the morning and by that evening, I was in the locked ward of a psychiatric hospital, same age as my dad. A young nurse took me to a room that would be my home for the next month. Took away my belt, my hose, my hair dryer, anything you could hurt yourself with. I remember telling her, I have no intentions of blow drying myself to death. 
She didn't laugh. I didn't even get into the bed. I took a blanket off the bed and I sat in the corner of the room, so ashamed, so lost, so convinced that just as my dad had been done with me, God was done with me. Every 15 minutes, they sent somebody to the door to make sure I was still alive. I was on suicide watch. And I never looked up, but at three o'clock in the morning, I had an encounter with an angel. I'm never aware of it happening before or since. But at three o'clock, the person didn't just stay at the door. They walked all the way to where I was. And I had my head on my knees, but when I saw their feet, I looked up. It didn't look like an angel. It looked like maybe a doctor going off duty. But he was holding something in his hand, and he gave it to me. And it was something you'd get a child. It was a little stuffed lamb. And when he walked to the door, he turned around, and he said this. He said, Sheila, the shepherd knows where to find you. And he was gone. I don't know what kind of pit you're in today. I don't know where you've been. I don't know where you, what you've done. You might think, well, you didn't choose that hell. You might be thinking, I chose the hell I'm living in right now by choices I made. I don't know what your story is, but I know this story. The shepherd knows where to find you. It has never been about us getting it right. It's about Christ who makes us right. Wouldn't it be amazing if today, if you decided to finally show up and let God love you just as you are? He's seen your movie. He knows your story. Because of what Christ has done, we don't have to pay the price that he's already paid for us. And because of that, we can say, I will rise. Another resource available from Emmanuel is Emmanuel Music dynamic and faith-filled worship music that will inspire you to grow. Songs like Lead Me to a Rock. From Emmanuel Music, search Emmanuel Live on iTunes, Amazon, or Spotify, or visit EmmanuelCC.org. Another resource available from Emmanuel is Emmanuel Music. Songs like Lead Me to a Rock. Search Emmanuel Live on iTunes, Amazon, or Spotify, or visit EmmanuelCC.org. Thanks for listening to Emmanuel Today. For more messages, visit EmmanuelCC.org.